right, good evening. How's everyone tonight? Does anyone need a, you can't hear me? Does anyone need a uh, handout? Anyone need a handout? Raise your hand if you need one, we'll get it to you. All right, glad you are here tonight. If you have your Bible with you, you can go ahead and open to Psalm 78. That's where we will be tonight, Psalm 78. We continue our journey through the Psalms. Psalm 78. If you'll just quickly uh, take a glance at this chapter, you'll notice it's 72 verses. That's a lot of verses. It's a long psalm. And we're going to cover the entire psalm tonight, but we're not going to look kind of each, each individual verse in depth. We're going to kind of move very, very quickly and kind of look at the big themes of this book. So we will get through tonight. You'll be out by at 1030, 11, something like that. So uh, j- just, just so you know, just so you know. Couple things before we get started. First of all, our December prayer guide is out right here in this little slot underneath pray on the missions wall. Uh, these little cards you can put in your Bible on your refrigerator. On one side, it's got international prayer needs. Uh, you can pray for some international missionaries this month. Uh, our Lottie Moon Christmas offering goal, we ask you to pray for that. There's an unreached people group on here, the Russians, Russian peoples. Uh, 134 million people uh, in this people group. 1.2% evangelical, uh, so very little evangelical work going on. So we want to pray that God would move and thrust out laborers in the harvest. On the other side, you have local needs. You can pray for our Christmas services. You know, Christmas is a time of the year when uh, some folks that uh, don't attend church regularly may be a little bit more likely to show up, and we want to be aware of that and leverage that and be welcoming and certainly pray that God would do a work in their heart when they do show up. And, you know, it's a time when Family brings, you know, brings their loved ones with them, and it's just a good opportunity for us. So pray that God would use our Christmas services. Uh, there's a prayer request for Fostering Hope, which is a new monthly ministry um, that's uh, focusing on ministering to parents who are fostering children to encourage them. And uh, it's a really neat ministry. Uh, that The first meeting will be tomorrow, December 7th, so if you have questions, you can Email uh, Jason, uh, our missions pastor. He'll give you the information about that or call. Uh, and then there's a national need to pray for Lee and Christy Merck. They are church planters in Red Lodge, Montana. How many have been to Montana to work with Lee and Christy? Anybody in here been to Montana? We've sent quite a few up there. Nobody? No one here has been to Montana? We all need to go next summer. It's a great, it's a great trip. It's somebody back there. It's a great trip. And uh, I want you to be aware of that. So this is a little prayer guide for you. Now, in reference to Christmas services... Uh, we have made up these little invite cards. And it just simply says Christmas Eve services, Sunday, December 24th, 9, 30, and 11. On the back, it's just blanks. So if you want to write your number down or something of that nature, you can do that. And we ask you to take these. There's, there's stacks around the building. Take a stack of them and pass them out. Just everywhere you go, invite people to our Christmas Eve services. Again, people that may not be regular attenders at a church because of their background or tradition may be likely to show up on Christmas Eve on that Sunday. And so uh, we, want to, we want people to know they're welcome here at the point. So grab some of these. Great little tool. Uh, you can, you know, just give them to friends or neighbors. You can, um, when you give a tip, you can put this with the tip at a restaurant. Just make sure it's a good tip, okay? Um, if you're not a good tipper, don't tell them which church you go to, okay? Uh, and, and you can pass these out all over the place. So we hope you will do that. There's a uh, our web address is on there, too, so they can look and get more information. Now, you know our, our tradition has been to annually we have a Christmas Eve service, usually in the late afternoon, early evening. Uh, but because Christmas Eve is on a Sunday, we're not going to have that service. We're just going to have our two morning services, 930 and 11. That will be our Christmas Eve service in, in the morning, just FYI, if you're wondering about that. So lots of good stuff going on. We began a Christmas series uh, on Sunday mornings last Sunday from Isaiah 9-6, the titles of Christ, names of Christ. His name should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this Sunday we're going to talk about Jesus being called Mighty God. So I'm excited about that. So hope you'll be here and bring somebody uh, with you. 
It's been a busy time, but a great time. We had our Christmas musical this past Sunday, and it was awesome. Our, our folks did such a great job, and, and uh, we're, we're just grateful for how the Lord is at work in our church. Uh, you've given over $100,000 to Lottie Moon so far. Uh, I mean, just think about that for a moment. Uh, I mean, I know we got a big goal, $250,000. We got it in, in here as well. Uh, and, and because the goal's so big, we can, we, we're kind of thinking, oh, we got a long way to go, and we do. Uh, but don't lose sight of the fact that you've already given over $100,000. That is highly significant. And uh, I'm just grateful to pastor a church that, that gives like you do. Um, I read an interesting anecdote today, and I never really thought about it. It was an article about why the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is at Christmas. Anybody know why the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is at Christmas? Anybody know why that is? I've been, I've been, I've been a Baptist longer than I've been a Christian. I've been a Baptist. I was born into a Baptist church, right? I was a Baptist from, from the very get-go, and I was like, well, I wonder why it is at Christmas time. Anybody, anybody know? Anybody? Any Lottie Moon experts out there? Uh, it's at Christmas time because that was Lottie Moon's suggestion. She wrote back home and said, we need more funds, and she had seen some missionaries in her area. She was in China, late 1800s, and she was a single lady. She's seen some missionaries from a, from a Methodist denomination, and they would collect money, uh, special offerings from the churches back in the state. She, thinks that, she thought, that's a good idea. And she said, why not Christmas time when, when people are in the spirit of giving, giving and receiving gifts? It'd be a good time for Christians to give to international missions. So that was her, her idea. So they began to collect uh, an offering. The first one was about $3,000 something, something like that. I mean, total. Uh, that was the first Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And uh, they started doing that every year. Then she passed away, and Annie Armstrong, she has an offering named after her as well in Easter, but Annie Armstrong said, we ought to name this uh, after Lottie Moon in honor of her and her, her, um, um, her encouragement to, to, to have this offering at Christmas time. So that's why the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is at Christmas. Aren't you glad you came tonight? Now that you know that? All right. If you don't know much about Lottie Moon, I encourage you to, to Google. Just Google Lottie Moon biography, and you, there's a lot of articles out there that are good articles. She lived a fascinating life. She was a, she was a gospel warrior. She was a tough lady. Um, she, uh, she was single, but she was engaged to be married, and uh, she was engaged to a really bright young theology professor at Southern Seminary. And this uh, professor, his name was Crawford Toy. Uh, began to dabble in uh, German higher critical thinking, which was prevalent in theology at that time, which basically means he began to uh, walk away from a belief that the Bible is the, the Word of God, that is, it is inerrant, it is truth, um, all of it is truth. And he began to walk away from the fundamentals of the faith. And so Lottie Moon, engaged to be married, said, if, listen, if you don't believe in, the, in the, the doctrines of our faith, I can't marry you. And she was deeply in love, and she walked away from that because of her uh, desire to honor Jesus and uh, her belief in the Word of God. And so she went to, to China as a single lady, and she uh, was single all her life, died as a single lady, and uh, she, was, uh, she was devoted to the Lord for sure. So incredible, incredible legacy. And that's what we honor every year when we take up the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which goes all directly to international missions. So no better investment for your money. But let's celebrate that we are uh, well on our way. Well, let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into Psalm 78 and, uh, and get started tonight. Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, that you love us, and we thank you for this opportunity to gather um, with our Bibles, to study, to learn, to be encouraged, to be challenged. And Lord, I pray that you would draw near by your Spirit as we study your Word. And uh, Lord, I pray that Psalm 78 would come alive. And, uh, Lord, that you would help us to, to be transformed tonight and to be determined as we leave today to be, uh, to be more like Jesus and to serve you for your glory. Well, thank you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. If you hear some different noises, the youth are downstairs tonight. They're having their Christmas party. Uh, so you may hear some things coming from the worship center. The choir's upstairs. They're having a Christmas party. Everybody's partying except us. Did anybody bring, does anybody got cupcakes or something? Can we, can we have a party in here? Uh, yeah, pecan pie, yeah, would be my preference. Uh, so, yeah, but, so you just get, you just get uh, the bread of life, amen? Word of God, amen, all right. Good deal, good deal. 
Well, uh, we're looking at Psalm 78 tonight, and I've titled this uh, lesson, Pass It On, Pass It On. And remember, the Psalms are a collection of hymns that were written to be used in corporate worship uh, among the people of Israel. And Kendall Easley has done a great job summarizing this book and picking up on a continual theme all throughout the book of Psalms when he writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. So we're reminded that the, that the Psalms are all about praising God, trusting God, no matter what situation you, uh, you are facing in life. And then John Piper picks up on these, these Psalms being a, a collection of hymns. He writes, the Psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And again, that's why we love the Psalms so much, because we identify, we resonate with the emotions that we find in these pages. And we've made it all the way to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. We're going to read a few verses to get started to kind of set the stage for the direction we are heading. Notice there, it's a, a mascal. Uh, mascal is a, is, a, is a, most scholars think, a, a musical term. Uh, we don't know exactly what it means, but it probably relates to some sort of musical uh, understanding. It says there, it's a mascal of Asaph. Asaph, again, was a a worship leader during the time of David. He would lead the music for Israel. So they would sing and play instruments and, and praise the Lord. And Asaph wrote this, this 72-verse hymn, all right? So you remember uh, growing up in church, there were some churches that would sing first, second, and fourth stanza, right? Remember that in the hymns? You know, then you had some churches, they'd sing all of them, all right? How many went to a Second, first, second, fourth stanza church, okay? How many went to church where you sang every, every, every line, every, all right, all of them, okay, good deal. Um, this is a long hymn, all right? If you're going to sing this, this is a long hymn to sing, 72 verses. But uh, it, it has a, a theme here. It has, uh, we're being pointed to an idea. Look what it says there in verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching, Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Now notice, this is a song, it's a hymn. And notice, he is intending to teach through this song. You understand, don't you, that songs teach, right? Songs teach. That's why it's important that our kids are learning the great songs of the faith. We're singing great songs of the faith because they teach. And that's why it's important also that a song has good theology. Because if a song has bad theology and we're singing it, you know, with vibrancy and enthusiasm, we are enthusiastically teaching each other wrong things, right? So we want to make sure that songs have good theology, that they are true. That's very important. He writes, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He's established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious Generation. So what is Asaph saying here? He's saying that our goal should be to pass on our faith, the teachings of God, to the next generation, so they in turn can pass them on to the next generation. And there's this perpetual cycle of believing people passing on the faith to the upcoming generation. That's how God has set this thing up, that those who know him personally, those who have a relationship with him, take the truth of God, and they pass it on to the next generation, and they teach them to pass it on, and then they pass it on to their kids and their kids' kids, and it should be this perpetual movement of, of believers passing on truth, passing on their faith to the next generation. So that's why I've called this Pass It On. We're going to be encouraged to pass on what we know, pass on the great doctrines, the great realities of our faith. And really, I just want to answer two questions tonight. 
based upon this idea of passing on our faith. Number one, what is the goal in passing on the faith to the next generation? What are we, what are we aiming at when we pass on truth? Secondly, what should we pass on to the next generation? What, what, what are some specific truths uh, that we should endeavor to share with the next generation? So two questions. So question number one, what is the goal in passing on the faith to the next generation? And there's an answer to this. It's verses 7 and 8. Three things. First of all, that our children will put their confidence in God. Notice what it says in verse 7. We want to we pass these things on to the next generation, uh, that they might know them, verse 6, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that, this is the reason we want this perpetual movement to be happening, so that they should set their hope in God. I mean, why should we pass on our faith? Because we want our children to trust God the way we trust God. We want our children to have a saving relationship with Him the way that we do. You know that we are saved by faith. We are saving, saved by placing our trust and our hope in Christ alone, right? And we want our children to place their trust and their faith and their hope in Christ alone. So the first reason we pass on our faith is because we want our kids and our kids' kids and our kids' kids' kids, we want them to come to a place where they understand they need the Lord and they place their trust in Him alone. They put their confidence, not in themselves, not in their flesh, not in their religious pedigree, not in their parents' faith, not in their denominational affiliation, but they put their hope in Christ, in, in the Lord. That, that should be our goal, right? That, that our kids and our kids' kids come to know the Lord personally. So that's the first reason we should pass on the faith to the next generation. Secondly, so that our children will not forget his works. Look what it says in verse 7. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. Humanity has a memory problem. I don't know why it is, but you and I are prone, if we're not actively meditating on truth, we are prone to forget important things. And if we are not intentional in passing on truth to our, to our children, our children's children, then they will forget the mighty works of God. Things that we celebrate, they won't even give a thought to. So we must pass on this this knowledge of God so that they will not forget his works. They'll remember who God is and what God has done and what God has done for them. And then third, we should pass on our faith to the next generation so that they will not follow patterns of unfaithfulness. Look in verse 8. That they should not be like their fathers. So in the context here, he's talking about the Israelites and how they had lived uh, in great unfaithfulness to the Lord. And he's saying, we want our children and children's children to, to learn from past uh, bad examples so that they, they don't repeat their uh, folly. Have you ever had, uh, you try to instruct your kids and they ask you if you ever did what you're telling them not to do? Have you ever had your kids do that to you? Say, you ought not to do that. Was, did you ever do it? And there's that awkward moment of like, well. And so my answer's been, you know what? Hey, mom and dad aren't perfect. We don't have a perfect background, so we're sinners in need of a Savior. But we learn some things that we can help you avoid if you listen to us. Right? If you just listen to us. Don't, learn from our, our unfaithfulness so you don't have to go down that same road. And so we want to pass on our faith so that our children will put their confidence in God. They'll not forget His works and not follow patterns of unfaithfulness. They'll learn from the past. You know the, the old adage... Those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, right? If we don't learn from these past examples of unfaithfulness, then we will repeat those, those same acts. So we want to avoid and have our kids avoid unfaithfulness to God, which leads to this question, okay, where do I start? What are some things I ought to pass on to my kids? What are some things I want my kids to know? Uh, and, I, and I want them to pass on to their kids. What, what are some things I want? Oh, by the way, there's Lottie Moon over there. Uh, you see the little cutout right over there? Uh, that is their actual height. See, y'all, y'all see that? Y'all are looking at me like crazy. Y'all see this? Let's look at it real quick. Hold the thought, whatever I was just saying. But uh, this was, oops, sorry. This was, uh, this was, this is Lottie Moon, and that's her actual height. I'm taller than her, I know, I know. Yeah, 
So uh, this lady, there's a story of, the, of a war between two, um, two armies in China, and she came up to the battlefield, and she was crossing the battlefield to, to pass through, and they had such respect for her, the, army, uh, the armies agreed to a ceasefire while Lottie Moon walked in the middle. She walked across, and they started fighting again. So, they, yeah, yeah they, they, they respected her greatly. So, anyway, that's Lottie Moon. Uh, I saw it over there, and I wanted to say something while I saw her over there. Okay. Um, so, what was I saying? Oh, what should we pass on to the next generation? What, what are, where do we start? What are some things we want them to know? Well, this psalm gives us a good starting place. This psalm gives us some truths, some major, I mean, big-time major truths that are things that are important to pass on to our kids. So what should we pass on to the next generation? Number one, you ready? God is awesome. God is awesome. Look what it says in verse 2. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we've heard and known that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation. Look at this. The glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Now, as Psalm 78 unfolds, we begin to see some specific wonders that the psalmist has in mind, some specific miraculous things God did in Israelites' history. Uh, But I I love the, the thrust of this idea, the thrust of this verse, that God is an awesome God. He has done wondrous things, and we ought to uh, constantly uh, re- relay to our uh, children, our children's children, our grandkids, whatever. We need to relay to them and remind them that our God is an awesome God. He has done great things, great things. We need to talk about the great things God has done, things like creation. You know, we like to, we find a, a, a pretty sunset. We'll, we'll stop and look, and I love to ask my kids, particularly the little ones, hey, who made that? Who made that? And they'll say, you know, God made that. And he just, just, hey, God did that. That's his handiwork. He's an awesome God. And, and, and we want to talk about the cross, the redemptive work of, of Christ, what he's done to make a way for us to be saved. And just, just rejoice in his awesome works. And you can trace his hand through, human, uh, through church history from uh, a- after biblical times, how we've seen God work and move in mighty, mighty ways. And so we need to remind our kids that God is Awesome. He's a holy, righteous, sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, unchanging, transcendent God, right? And we need to relate to our kids that, that our God is a, he's an awesome God. He is worthy of our reverence. He is worthy of our awe. He is worthy of our devotion. He is an awesome God. So we need to talk about that. Uh, if, listen to me. If, if we're not that impressed by the Lord, our kids are probably not going to be that impressed by the Lord. We're not amazed by our great God. Our kids are going to have a hard time being amazed by our great God. If, 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 Christ, if our Christianity consists of just going through the religious motions, that's not real impressive for a kid to see, right? Just going through the motions. But if they see... Mom and dad or grandma and grandpa or aunt and uncle, they see them engaged, excited, you know, vibrant, edge of their seat. Uh, then they'll say, you know, th- th- there may be something to this God that they're telling me about. So, first of all, God is awesome. Number two, we need to tell our kids God has spoken. God has spoken. Look what it says in verse 5. This is a really cool verse. He, the Lord, established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which commanded our fathers to teach their children. The next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise, tell them to their children. So he's saying here, God has spoken. He's given us his testimony, given us his law. He's speaking here of the Old Testament, specifically probably of the Torah, the law, the first, what we'd call the first five books of our Old Testament. He's saying God has spoken. We have his word, and we're to take what God has given to us in Revelation, his, his, his Bible, and we're to pass it on to our kids. And so they'll pass it on to their kids. We need to let our kids understand that God has spoken. And because of that, our Bibles are sacred. Our Bibles are incredible. This is not just some other book. This is the, the very 
Word of God, right? It's the very Word of God. The Bible says it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We need to understand that our Bible is a special book. This is when we when we open our Bibles, we are we are being addressed. When we're reading, we're being addressed by the God of the universe. Think about that. God is speaking to you. Uh, there's a, a great quote uh, from a um, uh, and I'm trying. His name just slipped my mind, but he's a uh, he's a great writer of the middle 1900s. And he said that when we, read, when we read our Bibles, it's like a fresh miracle every day. Every day, because it's God speaking, it's revelation. Now, I had this teacher growing up in church in, in Sunday school. Her name was Miss Pitts. You've probably heard me talk about Miss Helen Pitts. And she, you know, we had a very small church. And so, um, you know, we had the same teacher every year. She'd kind of move up with us. We had a small group of kids. And so we had her in third grade and fourth grade and fifth grade and sixth grade. Miss Pitts just kept... She's just hung there with us, and uh, she was a godly lady. She was a widow, and just a, just a godly lady. I, I remember her teaching us about uh, every morning. She would say, I, "I pray on the armor of God from Ephesians six, and she would teach us that. And she remember like it was yesterday. Uh, one thing she taught us that 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 I just can't get away from is that we need to have reverence for our Bibles. And she taught us. She said, "She said you shouldn't you shouldn't put th- anything on top of your Bible. It's a special book." And so I'm telling you, to this day, if I, if I forget, and I'll, you know, I'll sit it down, I'll sit something like that, you know, I'll walk away, I'll be like, huh? and I'll take it off. I mean, I, I, just, I just don't, I just, I, you know, and she was teaching us that the Bible's a special book. We don't have reverence for it. It's, it's God speaking to us, right? And so we need to realize that God has spoken and teach our kids that the Bible is an incredible, incredible gift. Number three, we need to teach our kids that God is good, God is good. Now, a lot of this psalm, and it's a long one, 72 verses, a lot of this psalm is a recounting of all that God in his goodness had done for Israel. So let me just kind of walk you through very quickly a list of some things God had done for his people. And you'll see the goodness of God emerge. Number one, he performed miracles on their behalf. Look in verse 12. Verse 12, it says, in the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt and the fields of Zone. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, made the water stand like a heap. What's he talking about there? The parting of what? Red Sea, when he, when he rescued his people from Egyptian bondage and slavery. He talks a little, about it a little bit more in verse 42. Look in verse 42, the same chapter. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. And it goes on to say, he turned their rivers to blood so they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locusts and the fruit of their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail, their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail, their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down, watch this, every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. So what's he saying here? God sent ten plagues against Egypt, mentions a lot of them here, to get Pharaoh's attention uh, so he would eventually let the people go. Because remember, when Moses first went to Pharaoh and he was speaking on behalf of God, the Lord says, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh said, who is your God? I don't care about your God. I'm not letting the people go. They're my slaves. And, and he keeps changing his mind and hardening his heart. And so God sends these devastating plagues against Pharaoh in Egypt, showing his great power and his great might to the point where finally uh, Pharaoh sends them away and God delivers them from Pharaoh's uh, wrath. And so we see here he performed great miracles on their behalf. Secondly, he guided them with his presence. Look in verse 14. Verse 14. In the daytime, this is after he led them out of Egypt. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and, and all the night with a fiery light. And speaks of this also in verses 52 through 54. Look in verse 52. He led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies. He brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. So it speaks of God's guidance. He, he guided them with his presence. Uh, 
The Bible says in Exodus, after they came out of Egypt, that the Lord would appear to them. He would manifest his glory in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so whenever the the pillar moved, they would know it's time to move and follow the Lord wherever he led. So he, he guided them with his presence. And by the way, that would have been pretty incredible to see, right? The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. That's what God did. Next, he provided for them. Look in verse 15. Verse 15. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. So when they needed water, God caused water to come out of a rock. Look in verse 24. Again, God's provision. Verse 24. It says, He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them grain of heaven. The manna was a special bread-like wafer that God would cause just to fall from heaven. And when they wake up in the morning, it was on the ground. And they had some every day that they could eat. And God provided them for 40 years with this, this manna from the wilderness. I wonder uh, what it was like. The Bible says it was kind of a honey-type uh, sweetness to it. So I'm thinking like honey bun maybe. I don't know what it, uh, exactly what it tasted like. Maybe healthier than that. I don't know. Um, but, but they had this manna, and it says, Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. Uh, he caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. By his power, he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the sea. So when they got tired of bread, they got tired of the manna, God sent quail so much they couldn't eat all of the meat. You know, some people just need meat. Uh, I'm just telling you, if you live around Frank Peavy very long, bread's not enough. You, he's got to have some meat, right? And there's people who need meat. So, so, so he, would, he sent bread and he sent meat and he, he provided for them in, in supernatural ways. Next, he handed out corrective discipline. Look in verse 32. Corrective discipline. In spite of all this, of his great provision, in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. So what he's saying is this. God would come against them with devastating judgment to get the people's attention. <laughs> Say, uh-oh, we need to get serious about the Lord. And they would turn back to him. And, and God cared for his people so much, he would not let them run into full headlong rebellion. He would, he would intersect them as a nation and get their attention to discipline them and get them back on the right path. And you know what? God does that same thing in our lives. Do you know that? The Bible says that when we become Christians, we become children of God, and God, as a loving Father, will sometimes discipline us to get our attention. Uh, the reason that, that I discipline my kids is to get their attention. If they're going the wrong direction, I want them to go the right direction. And, and God, as a loving Father, will do the same thing to us. So he handed out corrective discipline to the, the nation of Israel. Next, he forgave them. Look in verse 38. Yet, it says they were not steadfast toward him. Verse 37. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained, restrained his anger off and did not stir up all his wrath. And so he would, he would be merciful with them, even though he didn't have to be. He would forgive them and atone for their iniquity, and, and he forgave them. He was patient with them. Next, he gave them great victories. Look in verse 55. I told you we're going fast. Verse 55. He drove out nations before them. Here he's speaking about Joshua. And when Joshua led the people in the promised land, and God gave them victory over all the coalitions of armies living in the land. He gave them great victories. And then he gave them a land flung with milk and honey. Verse 55, it says, After he drove out the nations before them, he apportioned them for possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. So again, it's speaking about Joshua here. So he gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. So what do we see from this? We see over and over and over again how good God had been to Israel. And he said to the nation of Israel, you need to tell your children and your children's children, so they can tell their children that God is a good God. And, and I submit to you, that should be a, an emphasis in our instruction with our kids. That God is awesome, and God is spoken, and God is good. Everything God does is good. He's a good God. We sing the, the, the song, one of the first childhood songs we learn. God is great. God is what? Good. Let him think it's for our food, you know, that. So we want to teach our kids that God is good. He's a good God. He always does the right thing, and he's been good to us. 
I, I can assure you of this, based upon the authority of God's word tonight, God has been far better to you than you deserve. And God has been far better to me than I deserve. God is good. Number four, we, we, need, to, we need to pass on to the next generation that we should be faithful. Look in verse 56. Verse 56. So yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God, the people of Israel, and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. So he's saying God did all of these things for his people, and yet they still acted unfaithfully. They, they still turned their back to him. So let's just real quick, let's, let's walk through the psalm, earlier in the psalm, to see how the people treated God. God had blessed them Provided for them, shown his miraculous power. How did they treat God? Well, look in verse 9. First of all, they did not keep the covenant. It says, Ephraimites armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. So God said, hey, if you'll do what I tell you to do, I'll bless you. If you don't, I'll curse you. And the people of Israel, represented here by Ephraim, they didn't obey. They didn't keep their end of the covenant. Next, they refused to walk in his law. Verse 10, it says, they refused to walk according to the law. They refused to obey the word of God. Third, they forgot his deeds. Look in verse 11. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Fourth, they continued to sin against God. Look in verse 17. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. God gave them water of a rock, but they still rebelled against God. Verse 18 through 22. They put God to the test by complaining. Look in verse 18. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rocks so the water gushed out, the streams overflowed. Can he also give bread to, or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God, did not trust his saving power. So they were constantly complaining. God gave them water. I said, well, he won't give us bread. God gave them bread. Well, he won't give us meat. They just constantly complained about God, even though he was graciously providing for them. They were murmurers. They were complainers. And then they lied to God. Look in verse 36. They remembered that God was their rock, the most, God, the most high God, their redeemer, when God would judge them and get their attention. But, verse 36, they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. So they would say, okay, God, we understand that we need to get right with you. You're getting our attention. So we're going to be faithful. We're going to, we're, going to, we're going to serve you. And they didn't mean it. Didn't mean it. God would get their attention, and yet they would lie to God. And they would make commitments that were not real commitments. They lied to the Lord. And then they rebelled against him. Look in verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They rebelled against God. And then last, they worshiped idols. Look in verse 56. They tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies but turned away, acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They went to the high places in the land. They moved into jealousy with their idols. They would go to high places and build altars to false gods, to idols. So God had protected them, preserved them, provided for them, rescued them, given them water from a rock, manna from heaven, meat uh, to eat, uh, protection from enemies, victory over other enemies, and yet they would worship other gods. Can you imagine how, how rebellious that was in God's eyes? They were idolaters. They worshiped false gods. And so what do we learn from that? We learn that we should be faithful. Don't be like Israel. Don't be like Israel. Don't be unfaithful. Don't, listen, God is good. He's awesome. He's spoken. So keep his word. Do what he says. Don't turn from him. Don't rebel against him. Because if you do, there will be severe consequences. Over in Galatians 5, the Bible says that, that, that what, we, what we sow, we will also what? Reap. So we need to teach our kids, don't be unfaithful to God. Learn from Israel's example. So, Things that we learn. But here's the fifth and final thing we need to, from this psalm, that is a good starting place of truth to pass on to your kids. What do we say so far? God is awesome. God has spoken. God is good. We should be faithful. But fifth, God is gracious when we're not faithful. God is gracious when we're not 
faithful. Look in verse 59. It says, When God heard of their idolatry, he was full of wrath. He utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, delivered his power to captivity and his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword. Their widows made no lamentation. And so saying God came against them in judgment because of their, their idolatry. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep like a strong man shouting because of his wine and put his adversaries to rout and put them to everlasting shame. So he came and rescued his people. Even though he judged them, he still rescued them from the hands of their foes. And it says he rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built a sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David his servant, took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Now, now, what do we learn from this, the end of this psalm? It's really interesting how the psalm ends. Here's what we learn. The nation of Israel was a mess. All right? They blew it over and over and over again. And it's real easy sometimes when you're reading the Old Testament and reading psalms like this to get on your kind of high horse and think, those, those Israelites, I mean, don't they know any better? I mean, all that God did for them, and they still rebelled against Him, they were a mess. Guess what? So are we. God's been good to all of us. And I would submit to you that even as Christ followers, we've all had some bad moments, haven't we? Times we've forgotten the goodness of God. We've walked away from His commandments and kind of gone our own direction and rebelled and did our own thing. And, and, and it's really easy to look down at Israel and say, why didn't they get it? <laughs> and all of a sudden, the Lord's looking at us and saying, why don't you get it? <laughs> right? The nation of Israel is a mess, and so are we. I mean, these the same, the same sins uh, that we talked about under heading number four, refusing to walk in his law, forgetting his deeds, continuing to sin, complaining, lying, rebelling, they are still sins that... The, that, that Christians deal with today, living unfaithfully to the Lord. Idol worship. Now, uh, we don't we not see in this day and time in, in our neighborhoods, you know, worship of a Baal statue or Asherah pole or something like that, that we see in the Old Testament. But but listen, our culture still has its idols, don't they? Our culture still has idols. What are some idols in our culture today? Things that people worship instead of things that people place a, a, a place in preeminence over the Lord. I am money, right? Yeah, sports. Uh, what's that? Car? Yeah, car, yeah. Automobile? Material possessions, what's that? Prestige, yeah. Acceptance. I mean, all, we could go on and on with these uh, comfort, security. Um, political parties can become an idol. I mean, you name it. There, there, there are things that we can elevate to a position that is, that is above the Lord, that we place more uh, emphasis on, than we, do on our, than we do with our relationship with the Lord. And, and when we have something on our priority list higher than God, even something good, it's an idol. Let me say it again. Anything on our priority list that's above God is an idol. All right? There's something in your life more important than the Lord it's an idol. And so it's real easy to think, oh, those Israelites, they were a mess. Well, guess what? So are we. We need to learn so we don't live like the Israelites, all right? So the nation of Israel was a mess, and so are we. But in the midst of great unfaithfulness, we see God faithfully working out his plan of redemption. That's what the end of chapter 78 is about. Even in the midst of their craziness, their sin, their iniquity, God still chooses a tribe, and he chooses a leader from that tribe and raises him up to be a king. And then we learn in 2 Samuel that, that the Lord makes a covenant with David, this king that he chose. He said, David, from your lineage, I'm going to send a king who reigns forever. So he's telling us there that from the lineage of David would come a Messiah who would reign forever and ever and ever and ever. That Messiah, his name is what? Jesus, right? 
So even in the midst of the craziness, God's still working out his plan to choose a tribe, to choose a king, to choose a lineage, so he could send a Messiah for our sins. To send a Messiah to, to be the Savior for the world. So he's still working out his plan. You can say it like this. God graciously established the Davidic throne in anticipation of sending a Messiah who would reign forever. That's what's happening at the end of chapter 78. God is setting the stage for the Messiah to come. Now, God could have gotten so fed up with Israel that he completely wiped them out, right? The precedent's there, Noah's Ark, right? Where God says, I'm fed up, I'm, 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 I'm wiping them all out. But God never does that. God never wipes Israel out completely. He judges them. He sends the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But he always keeps a remnant together and preserves them as a nation. Why? Because God made a promise to Abraham. Hey, one day through your descendants, I'm going to send a Messiah. So I'm going to, I'm going to preserve my people. He made a promise to David. Through your descendants, I'm going to send a, 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 a Messiah who will reign as king. And so, even in the midst of the craziness, God is still working out his plan of Redemption. So what does that mean for us? We need to tell the next generation that they desperately need the Lord. Our kids need to understand that they are sinners in need of a Savior. Amen? And the reason we know that is because we are sinners in need of a Savior. And this is one of the reasons I get so frustrated by TV preachers. Um... The, these these health and wealth prosperity preachers that basically their entire sermon is how God is for you and God's going to bless you and God's going to, you know, uh, that, that Nissan Sentra, uh, he's going to upgrade it to a BMW and that, you know, that that uh, three-bedroom, two-bath house, well, God's going to put you into a, you know, six-bedroom, five-bathroom, four-car garage mansion, um, if you keep sowing your seed into my ministry and all this crazy stuff, which, by the way, you understand that like a three-bedroom, two-bath house is like, compared to about 80% of the world, is like filthy rich, right? The fact that you, the fact that you have more than one pair of shoes to wear, you are, you, you, are, you are rich compared to most of the world. You understand that? I mean, so uh, the fact that you eat like more than two times a day, is, is, is unheard of in, in many places in the world, a, a substantial meal. And, and so, so, so but, but you have these TV preachers, and, and it's basically, hey, God's for you. Uh, everything's good. You're good. I'm good. God's going to bless you. And they never talk about sin. They never talk about our need for a Savior. And listen to me. If you don't understand the bad news that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you're never going to see your need to embrace the good news that Jesus saves. Why should I need Jesus if I'm okay, right? If I don't know if I'm, if I don't, if I don't think I'm a sinner, then why should I call out upon Jesus to save me? And so we need to be diligent to to teach the truth, the Scripture that says, "Hey, there's none righteous, no, not one. Nobody perfect in this room." Nobody perfect in our families. We need to confess our sin to our kids and say, listen, I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We need a Savior. So we need to tell the next generation that they desperately need the Lord. And, and then last, we need to tell the next generation about the amazing grace of God. Yes, we are sinners, but in the midst of our mess, Psalm 78, God has a plan of salvation. Amen? He's a God of grace. As I was studying this, I, I kept thinking about 2 Timothy. Turn to 2 Timothy. We're going to close with this verse. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 11. The saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, speaking of Jesus, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, watch this, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If, if my salvation was up to me, I'd be in trouble. How about you? But see, God's the one that saves. God's the one that initiates. God's the one that 
forgives. God's the one that justifies. God's the one that adopts. God's the one that reconciles. God's the one that keeps and secures. He's the one that saves. It's not up to me. It's, it's His grace active in my life. And so uh, even when we stumble and fall, God still keeps His end of the covenant. He's faithful. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God remains faithful? So, what should we pass on to our kids? Well, here's a good starting point. God is awesome. God has spoken. God is good. We should be faithful. And God is gracious when we are not faithful. As we understand we're sinners in need of a Savior, we see clearly the amazing grace of God. So, whew, I went fast. A lot of, lot of ground to cover. Any, uh, any uh, questions tonight before we close? Any questions from Psalm 78 before we close tonight? Any questions tonight? Oh, Mr. Ralph? Yes, sir. Roughly the time of David. Yeah. David, uh, maybe on into Solomon's reign. But it, it, you read about Asaph over in, uh, I think it's uh, I think it's First Chronicles. I don't remember the exact chapter, but uh, or is it Second Chronicles? Maybe Second Chronicles. But... Um, but it, roughly that same time period. It's when they were getting, the, um, getting ready to worship. You know, David brought the ark into Jerusalem and wanted to build the temple, and they established a place for the ark to be, but they hadn't had the temple yet, but he was getting everything in place to, to have worship there at the, the ark, eventually at the temple. And so it was in that same time period. Yeah. Other questions tonight? Other questions? Psalm 78? No questions? Anyone? Anyone? All right. Spare your heads with me. Oh, yes, ma'am. Does he still, I said again? Absolutely. Her question was, is he still chasing chasing and disciplined believers today? He does, and here's how we know that. Uh, Hebrews uh, 12 says it. Hebrews 12 says that he's our father, and he loves us. So because he loves us, he will discipline us to get us back on the right path. Um... And, and it says, you know, discipline for, the, for a season is very painful. It's, it's not fun, right? It's not fun to be disciplined. But it yields uh, the, the fruit of righteousness. It, 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 it's good. God will use discipline in our life as our loving Heavenly Father to get us back on the right path. And so we'll bear good fruit in our lives. And so one of the things that I love about being saved is I know that God, He'll never just let me go my own direction, He'll always, if I'm going the wrong direction, he will intersect my life and discipline me. And it can be very painful, but he does it to get my attention. Now, here's my, here's my, um, my take on that, because a lot of people say, well, how do you know if you're being disciplined? If you're going through a hard thing, does it mean you're being disciplined? Because remember, last week we talked about Job and said that there is a category for unexplained suffering. So just because you're going through suffering doesn't mean you're dis- being disciplined by God. My experience, and I believe this lines up with what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in John 14, being a convictor. My experience is, if God is disciplining me because I've got sin in my life, concurrent with that discipline, there'll be the conviction of the Holy Spirit showing me that sin in my life. Does that make sense? In other words, I won't be wondering why, I would be very clear. Okay, Lord, Holy Spirit's showing me. This is an area of my life I need to address. So I believe that true discipline of the Lord will be um, accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit in you to show you this is an area in your life you need to deal with. Specifically. You've probably heard me say, one of the ways I know I'm a Christian is I can't get away with anything. When I, when I, when I blow it, I do something wrong, the Holy Spirit instantly convicts my heart. And if I want to kind of ignore that conviction and kind of keep on, then you know, the Lord may, uh, may take me through something very difficult to get my attention to, you know, wake me up. That's what discipline is, right? You know, if I, if I tell my kids, don't go play in the road, and they go play in the road where they could get run over, well, I, I'll, I, I might discipline them, and the discipline might be, might be painful, but it's better than the alternative, getting run over by a vehicle. It's meant to get their attention, get them back on the right path, okay? So discipline, even though it can be hard, is a reflection of God's love for you. Reflection of God's love for you. So we ought to be grateful for it. Yeah, good question. And, and that is for new... So what we saw happen with Israel still happens today in the lives of believers. Hebrews chapter 12. 
Other uh, questions? Would God discipline unbelievers? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we see him pouring out his wrath uh, in certain situations on unbelievers. Uh, now, the, the, the discipline there is not a father disciplining his child. It is uh, a judge condemning a sinner who won't turn to him. There's a big difference in that. Big difference in that. But yeah, we see God pour out his... his there's Like Israel, he sent the Babylonians to overthrow the southern kingdom. He sent the Assyrians to overthrow the northern kingdom, you know. And uh, it, it, was, it, was, uh, it was his wrath against their idolatry. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, and that's the interesting, you know, point. You talk about God's judgment and wrath. You know, you look at what's happening in our, in our society and you think, you know, how long will God tarry? In judgment, when when you see the 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 just the the, the immorality, the um, the the wickedness going on in our society, it's just it's uh, every day that God doesn't come against us in devastating judgment is uh, is just grace because uh, our nation deserves the uh, the judgment of God for sure. For sure. Uh, yes, Eli. That's a great question. Uh, he asked, "What's the difference between deny and faithless?" Um, the idea there is uh, over in I think it's is it Luke nine where Jesus says. Um, if you deny me, I'll deny you before my father. So in other words, if you are ashamed to identify with me, um, that's probably an indication you're not a believer in Christ. So someone just if someone says, I'm just denying Jesus Christ and walking away from him, I don't want to have anything to do with him, I'm ashamed of him, that's probably an indicator they're not, uh, an indicator they're not a true believer if they maintain that. There's, you know, there's a case of Peter, but he quickly repented. When he was confronted, he had a bad moment, quickly repented. Uh, but if someone just walks away from the Savior, it's indicated they weren't truly saved in the first place. Um, and so, but faithless is for the, the believer that stumbles. The believer that, that uh, you know, has a bad day. Yeah. Any other, any other questions tonight? So I would say it's the difference between a believer and unbeliever. That's, that's how I would interpret that. Any other questions tonight? Before we, uh, before we close? Anyone else? Anyone else? All right. Bow your heads with me just for a moment. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are grateful, Lord, for the study. Grateful, Lord, for Psalm 78. There's so much here, but, Lord, I pray that you would give us grace to learn from the example of the Israelites, Lord, and how, um, Lord, even in the midst of great grace and, and provision and your goodness, they still, Lord, turned away from you. And Lord, I pray we'd learn from that. And we would, instead of running from you, we would run to you and recognize you are a good God. You are an awesome God. And we would, we would desire to live according to your word. And so, God, help us to learn our lesson from history. We don't want to repeat history. We want to learn from it. And by your grace and by the power of your spirit, we want to, we want to live differently than the uh, than the Israelites did in uh, in the Old Testament days. So God help us to learn. And God, I, I do I do just uh, ask also that you would just help us be amazed by grace. Because even uh, even when we're trying to live for you and live faithfully for you, there are days where we just simply blow it. And I'm grateful, Lord, that you are a God of grace in the midst of our mess. And so I pray that we would just be grateful for Jesus, grateful for salvation, grateful for your hand. Uh, on our lives, grateful for the fact that in Christ we are justified and adopted. And, and Lord, even as our Father, you, you discipline us to help us to get on the right path. And we're just so grateful for your uh, unceasing uh, activity in our lives. And we want to say tonight that we love you and we praise you. And we lift this prayer up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. We're dismissed tonight. Don't forget to grab um, some cards. There should be some... Maybe back on the, is there, there's some of these on that back counter, Rodney. There's some back there, some here on this table, some down this uh, hallway. 
So grab some, some invite cards and uh, invite, 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 all right? Amen. God bless you. We're dismissed.